And I just love talking about myself so we can be here all day long. Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 welcome to Talking Joe. Now, today we have got a very special guest. It is a bona fide G.I. Joe art legend. When I think G.I. Joe art, I think Rod Wiggum, and we are honored to be talking to him today. Rod Wiggum is a commercial and comic book artist. He began his career in the mid-1980s, drawing a run on G.I. Joe, a real American hero, covering most of issues 31 to 58, some iconic issues there. He returned for a one-off, 78, and then a trilogy, issues 116 to 118, the Destro Search and Destroy arc. His comic career includes stints on many titles at Marvel, DC, and others, including Punisher, Star Trek, The Shadow. Uh, since 2008, Rod has been the artist on the syndicated comic strip, Jill Thorpe. Now, before we bring him in, I will not be talking to him alone because I will be joined by my co-host. It's Real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners and viewers. Let's bring in that guest. Let's do it. Here we go. Here's Rod. Ah. Hi, Rod. Welcome. Glad you could join us today. I'm happy to be here. Um, let's uh, hope that I don't wear everyone down. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, sometimes I like to start not at the beginning, but at today. Can you talk about how it feels to draw a daily newspaper strip and how that is different than drawing a monthly comic book? Well, first of all, it's extremely restrictive simply because of the size. So you're always having to deal with the limitations of how much you can fit into a panel because the, the, the final print size is, you know, it's sort of like a postage stamp. And you have to have a certain amount of breathing space for captions and lettering. So it's, it's a very restrictive and uh, challenging process. In comics, you have breathing room. Like, it's, you know, I've talked about, we, uh, I like horizontal pans. I like vertical, na narrow panels that create timing. But in a comic strip, you are literally fit into these very restrictive spaces. You also have, uh, you're, you're working for an audience that isn't really that literate in comics visual jargon. They don't, you know, they don't have a lot of the basic knowledge of how to read comics. So you have to, you have to do a very straightforward I'm not going to say simplistic, but it's a very clear, straightforward um, format you have to work in. And it's, you know, it pays the mortgage, <laughs> but it is, it is extremely, extremely restrictive. And you're always trying to, I'm always trying to find a way to make the shots interesting, but they can't be complicated. And it, when I get to, when I do commissions, it's like I get shot out of a cannon because I have breathing room <laughs> and there's so many things that you're capable of working with. 
And the problem also, you're, you're, you're feeding three panels a day to the reader. So you have a very li limited set of information you can give them. And also it has to uh, be a, just a st simple, straightforward storyline. Because once somebody reads a daily, they don't have, generally don't have what happened in the first of the week at hand. You know, in other words, it, it's a very piecemeal sort of uh, process for uh, assimilating the storyline. So it's, um, I, uh, last year, I, I, the one thing I've, uh, I've been doing Gil Thorpe for a very, <laughs> a very long time. Last year, I had a lot of fun. It was uh, an anniversary for the Flash Gordon comic strip. And the people who uh, own Flash, although the strip's not getting printed anymore, published, they had a big anniversary thing and they allowed artists from all over the country to do their version of Flash Gordon. So I got to do the equivalent of like a Sunday Flash Gordon strip that I wrote and inked and lettered. And that was that was pretty exciting. I, I made as much of it as I could, but it is it is a it is a very um, restrictive format to work in. Do you approach it in in terms of just making sure that you produce one uh, one strip a day, or do you sort of hammer it and build up a backlog to to release so you've you know if you've got breaks in between? How do you how do you approach it? A, a comic strip, a, a syndicated comic strip, is just a meat grinder. Even even more, I think, than comics. There's no breathing space, and I tend to do. I turn the whole thing around in like two and a half days. So I'm penciling and inking three dailies a day, sometimes more than that. I also letter the strip, uh, which. Uh, I found really helpful simply because because of the limited amount of space you have to work in compositions, I can design the strips and put balloons and captions to create a flow. Uh, a lot of times when you see comic strips, it's lettered, but you know, it can be lettered by somebody else and they just tend to put the art, the balloons, everything right across the top of the panel. So you get, again, you're getting a very constrictive, area to work in and by being able to do the lettering myself i'm able to create a flow with the captions and the balloons and it makes it easier to make more interesting compositions but it is it is um absolutely uh you know it's just a, a machine that keeps chewing you, know, you you never you never you never get to the end you know when when you work in regular comics you wrap up an issue and there's a psychological release from that. It's like, you may have to start on the next one the next day, but there's this little, you know, this little uh, treat that you can uh, fire your brain on, but on a, on a syndicated strip, it's just, you know, it's never ending. It just never, it never stops. Rod, there are, um, there are stories of well-known comic strips where the, uh, the the cartoonist was going to take a vacation, so they either double timed and got sort of a week or two of extra strips done ahead of time, so they could disappear for seven or fourteen days, or they hired someone to ghost for them. So you know they drew 
52 weeks and then 52 weeks and then half a year. And then someone did the strip for them for a week or two so they could take a vacation. Have you been able to do either of these two things? No, not really. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be polite as I can possibly be about uh, working uh, on Gil Thorpe is that um, I take deadlines extremely seriously. And sometimes you work with people who don't take deadlines very seriously. <laughs> Uh, there's a new writer on the strip. He's a young guy and he's extremely uh, diligent, but I never had any breathing room for however long I've done this thing. And the trouble with Gil Thorpe is I couldn't find anybody who would want to fill in on it because nobody wants to draw a football game. <laughs> I, I myself am not a sports fan. Uh, the sports that I do enjoy are very peculiar. I mean, they don't, you know, I like, I, I like to watch surfing. I like to watch fencing. I'm fond of sumo wrestling, which I know sounds odd, but, uh, but so uh, I know there has not been a single fill in. Uh, I have drawn that thing uh, through flew through um, family situations to deal with, you, you know, you're, you're always playing catch up. So it's, it, that's, that's the, the sensation of being in this machine and um, there's no break for it. There, there really isn't. I would, I would love to take like three weeks off and, and have an actual vacation uh, or, or just sleep but you know it's it's a it's an odd sort of thing it's uh demanding <laughs> uh how aware of gil thorpe were you before 2008 when when you were reading newspaper strips or when you were oh guys i see from your shaking head <laughs> uh had never heard of it okay but H had no idea that exists and it's been around for decades but it's just it's it's not a strip that I ever ever saw in a newspaper growing up, and it's been established. All right, so, so to somewhat transition back to GI Joe, but I, I want to ask another question that's not necessarily 1984, the year. You have drawn many different kinds of comics, and you are drawing a sports newspaper strip. Um, there are people who draw action or superhero comics who actually don't. That's not their their favorite kind of comic to draw. You've drawn uh, Star Trek and Punisher. You've drawn The Phantom, G.I. Joe. The Shadow, Doc Savage, Terminator. What are the kinds of comics you you most have enjoyed drawing, genre or style? I would have I have done some superhero work. I mean, I drew some uh, long, uh, some thirty eight page specials of the Justice League for DC. I've drawn some issues of The Flash. And I enjoyed it because as far as I'm concerned, that's easy money. But I was always really fond. I've always been fond of uh, more realistic books or odd books. I like, you know, my, my concept of uh, heroes is somebody who gets knocked on their keister, you know, gets back up, spits the blood out of their mouth, plants their feet, put their dukes up. You know, and so the books 
the book that I enjoyed most of all out of my entire career was Punisher. Um, because it's one guy, I, I was working with Chuck Dixon, and Dixon, he, he understands the value of action, if nothing else. And he also really gives you breathing room on the page. You know, I did more double page spreads and, and extra splash pages working on The Punisher than what anything else I've ever done. I, I got stuck for, and I don't want to say stuck because I was happy to work, but I did, I did a lot of books like Star Trek. I did a lot of movie adaptions. I did books, Men in Black. I did books that had likenesses. And one of my least favorite thing in the world to do is to try and do a likeness of anybody. But, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I, I'm a realist. I like, you know, I like realistic books for the most part. So I would say that the ones I enjoyed, the book I enjoyed the most was The Punisher because it was just, you know, out, there was so much breathing room, so much action in it. And I wasn't having to please William Shatner or Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> right. As, as I think I've heard that in the case of Star Trek at DC in the 80s, the rule was that actors had approval for covers and actors had approval for any page where they were the only sort of marquee actor on that page. And uh, presumably sometimes an editor said to you, no, redraw this face or, oh, I heard from Paramount, you have to redraw this face. Did that happen to you? Well, I, I think it, depend, it depended on the, the film. I mean, the, on the books. Hmm. Like with Star Trek, I think when I was doing it, I think the, the three primaries, Shatner, uh, Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, I believe, had approval. I don't know if they ever actually looked at the stuff or if they had somebody who delegated it, they delegated it to, and they were getting approval on that. Uh, when I did the Terminator, uh, I did a Terminator series that started at Malibu Comics and then Marvel bought Malibu and it finished there. I think the only person who had approval was uh, Linda Hamilton. Is that the name I'm looking for? She is. Yes. Yeah. Sarah she Connor. is yes, Sarah Connor. Yeah. So it's 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 quite different. I I had odd. I did I did an adaption of the movie Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone had approval, and he was very hands on. And the the, the strange thing about that was is. Um, and you notice he has a slight imbalance in his eyes. His eyes are a little not level, you know, they're not center line. And as an artist, I just automatically corrected that. And then Stallone said, I understand. I'm an artist is what he said. I understand what this guy's doing, but don't fix my eyes. So I had to purposely make myself straighten that out or not straighten it out. Unstraightened. And the funniest thing, my favorite uh, likeness is when I did the Men in Black adaptions and Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones both had approval. So I did the first six pages of the movie adaption. They actually gave me an unfinished cut of the film. And um, Will Smith was pretty happy with it. 
But Tommy Lee Jones, this was the decision, the editor. I had I had done a very realistic Tommy Lee Jones, you know. He's a, I think he's a fantastic actor. I love the guy's face, all the weathering. And somebody decided at Marvel that maybe that's a little bit too much. And they went in and took some of the lines off of Tommy Lee Jones's face. This is the story I, I was related to, related to me. And at a certain point, the pages finally got to Tommy Lee Jones and he's like, where's my wrinkles? So if you, if you look at the, the, the adaption of the Men in Black comic that I did for Marvel, if you look at the six, nobody went back and put the lines back in. So Tommy Lee Jones is about 15, 20 years younger than in the rest of the book. Because Tommy Lee Jones is like, hey, I earn these. And that's, you know, that's kind of my favorite story on likenesses. But it's, it's different with everybody. Uh, when I was doing Star Trek, the, the, the general idea I was given was do Shatner from Wrath of Khan. So that was like that was the look we were going for. And you, only, you were doing the book five or six years after that. Yes. And they, I guess they just felt that was Shatner at his peak. <laughs> but that's that's what I was. All the reference I worked from was from Wrath of Khan. And uh, there weren't too many. There were only a few issues where I got to draw the series in the original uh, timeline. You know, Star Trek, the original series, whatever it's called. But I got to do the young guy, uh, Kirk and the young Spock. And that was really exciting because I loved that show so much when I was a kid. But, uh, you know, it was it's it's a it's a it's a demanding thing. I think a lot of people try to avoid it if possible. As, I was going to say before we, before we get too far into it, let's um, let's talk about where you are actually right now. Oh. You're in your your studio. So I don't know that we've interviewed an artist thus far where their drawing desk is right behind them in view of the camera. What a treat. I'm practically surgically attached to the thing. <laughs> I don't, um, this is where all my uh, uh, computers and technology live. So um, yes, this is a somewhat working studio. <laughs> somewhat. Somewhat. Can you tell us about um, about your studio space and, and uh, environment that you work in and the paraphernalia that you've got on uh, on your walls on and all these kind of oh, things. That's that's a long story. Well, my wife and I live <laughs> in a small town south of Atlanta called Noonan, uh, which is uh, it's a little college town. There's a small university here, and we have a pleasant house out in the countryside. Uh, it's not it's not a mansion. It's not a big place. Right? So uh, it's a it's an it's a it's an intimate room to say the least. It's a nice small room. I've had very large studios and small studios and um, God, I don't know what to tell you about everything that's on the wall. Um, let's see. That is my, uh, that is the Japanese theatrical release post movie poster for you only live twice. Sean Connery. I was a huge, I still am a big Bond fan, but when I was a kid, I, I was crazy about Sean Connery. And uh, so there's multiple Bond posters in here. I've got the poster from Russia with Love. I got the poster from, um, and Goldfinger. 
Um, and this piece, okay, this is a classic right up here by War Bonds. That's an actual World War II bond poster selling War Bonds. Don't know the artist that painted it. It's a fantastic uh, action shot. Let's see. I have a fair number of model kits. I, I like to build models in my spare time. I And I'm particularly fond of uh, aircraft from the Second World War. So there's, you know, there's a... Uh -huh. Just above your hat. Just above my hat and <laughs> over here and over here and hanging from the ceiling. Um, Excellent. Um, I, On fishing wire. Yes, exactly what it is. I was born in the military. I was actually born on an Air Force base. I grew up the first 18 years of my life. I was in the military, so to speak. And uh, the old man was in TAC, Tactical Air Command. So I grew up around fighter jets. That's the, my whole childhood uh, was on mil, you know, Air Force bases, uh, mm -hmm. different parts of the country and Europe. So I, I grew up around fighter jets and uh, uh, had a great love for them. Rod, behind you is your drawing table. Uh, Gilthorpe, is it drawn in pencil and ink on paper and lettered on computer? Have you drawn digitally? I, I it, it's drawn. I, I, I'm, I'm analog except for the lettering. I, I pencil and ink it, and then letter it in Illustrator after I scan it in. I, I I've used the computer mostly for coloring art. Uh, I've never had the uh, the urge to spend the kind of money it would take to you know to get a sink and to to, to draw digitally. Um, I've often found that it just I I can't get past it being an, so too antiseptic. I like the feel of paper and canvas, so you know I only use the computer for lettering or uh, occasional coloring. But it's a, I'm an old school analog kind of guy. So when you were when you were young, you were sort of growing up in uh, sort of the air, <laughs> I guess on Air Force spaces, but going to but going to to school was arts a key part of your education. Were you uh, did it, did you realize quite early on that you you had a ta talent for drawing? Well, that's kind of interesting. I have um, <laughs> I, I have. Zero formal art education. I uh, didn't go to art school. I, I've always loved visual storytelling. When I was a kid, I read comic strips before I, you know, it, was, it helped me learn how to read. But I was always fascinated with visual storytelling and design. And this is long before you guys came into the world, I'm sure. But there used to be a syndicated program on television, a little half hour black and white show is called Learn How to Draw with John Nagy. And John Nagy was this slender, vaguely, I'm going to use this term, beatnik looking guy. He had a goatee. So like in 1958, you know, that's what it is. And he, he had, it was a very simple, straightforward, syndicated drawing class. And I remember to this day, and I was, God, third grade? Maybe I was in the third grade. I was in New Mexico, so I was. that's how I know my age is like, what country or state was I in? And he, he all I ever did was teach uh, pencil drawing. 
And I remember him drawing, and it was an, it was my first introduction to the power of negative space. He just did a drawing, very simple black and white drawing of two kids walking on a snowy field and they're pulling a sled and you can see a house in the background. And it's almost completely just white space. But he, you know, he put the tracks of the sled and the, the, the footprints in the snow and created this three-dimensional space with just these simple little spots of black and line work. And I just, it, it just fired something off in my brain. And after that, it was, um, it was all I could think about. I mean, that's, that's all I've, uh, drawing has just been a basic need that I had, um, from being a really young kid. And, um, I, as far as education goes, art education, you know, I went, I graduated high school in a small town in Kansas, Derby, Kansas. And my uh, senior, junior and senior year, we had, I had an art teacher, Richard Dolliff. He was a really wonderful guy. He was very enthusiastic, you know, and he would always, whatever there was to be posters or, you know, stuff for sporting events or for plays. I was the guy he always went to and he saw how interested we all were. A lot of kids, you know, were into comics and he got the idea and he went and talked with a teacher who taught the printing classes. And we, he actually got us together and we created, drew, inked, lettered and printed our own comic books in high school. And that was, that was just, that was my first great art lesson in that I learned precisely what happens to art when it's reproduced. You know, when you reduce the art for shooting, what the camera sees, what the camera doesn't see. And that's, that's my single bit of formal education is that I, in high school, I had an art teacher who just encouraged his students with whatever they were interested in. And I still somewhere in a box have those comic books. And that was, you know, that was my, my last shot at a formal education. Did, did you and those other uh, students make several different issues? Yeah. Well, we did one issue a year because it took that much time to get around to it and to allocate the printing. And the year after I graduated, I did a story anyway and, and gave it to them. So I was I was like the, uh, I don't want to say posthumous, but the, there were three issues. My junior year, my senior year, I did, I did a story. And then um, the year after I graduated, I managed to do a story and get it to my former teacher. So there, there, there were three issues all together and I had three stories. So you had been reading, looking at or reading newspaper strips. At what point did you discover comic books? Who, who gave them to you or where did you get them? Okay. Well, I, I, I had, as a kid, you know, I had access to him. You saw you found comic books were in drugstores and grocery stores. So I'd run across them. I, when I was a very young kid, I was um, fascinated with uh, 
the comics that Carl Barks did of Donald Duck. Carl Barks is like a great storyteller. He's a really wonderful comics artist. And um, I, I got very interested in that. And then at the end, at the beginning of the 60s, superhero comics finally came back. And that's when I discovered um, my, my first real run at comics was DC because they were the ones who brought superheroes back. And I, I'm very fond, have very fond memories of those books. I liked the odd books. I, I've loved the Blackhawks since the first time I ever saw them. That's one of my favorite comic book series. Back then at DC, they still had the black uniforms. I loved the Metal Men, which was a uh, strange science fiction strip about uh, this group of uh, humanoid robots. It had a very peculiar sense of humor to it. I loved the Doom Patrol. I liked stuff that was odd. There's a famous story that Archie Goodwin talks about that when he was a kid, he always liked the B-team characters. He liked the weird guys. So when he was a little kid and there were kids in the neighborhood running around with a towel tied around their neck, they were Batman or Superman. And Archie said, well, I was the Green Llama, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> which was a beautiful comic done by a great artist. But that was always the stuff that appealed to me. I was particularly fond of Adam Strange. Uh, and there was a backup strip called The Atomic Knights that I was just crazy about, a post-apocalyptic uh, science fiction series with guys who wore medieval armor and rode giant dogs. I mean, it's just so bizarre. But the, uh, the artist, the first artist that influenced me and still to this day uh, is Russ Heath did a book for DC called The Sea Devils. And the first comic book you know, grown-up comic book I can remember buying was a copy of the Sea Devils because the cover was so beautiful, you know, and I opened it up and I was, I've always loved Russ Heath. I love clean, graceful art. And I also was a huge fan of Ross Andrew, who drew Wonder Woman, um, The Metal Men. He did, DC had this great book, uh, Star Spangled War Stories, and they had this World War II series where uh, in, the, in the Pacific, Japanese and American soldiers discover an island that still has dinosaurs on it. So it's like every, every seven-year-old kid's dream to have army men and dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, many, many years later, when I was working at D.C., I tried to... Uh, convince them to bring that book back, but it didn't work out. So that's, it, I was always interested in visual storytelling and, um, you know, comics, it was the whole Renaissance, you know, that, and then once Marvel came along, I've, I've never understood that people's like, I'm a DC man, I'm a Marvel man. I've never understood any of that. To me, it's always the art and the stories and, um, so, but that's, that's where it was. I was just a, a little kid who, um, I just loved comics. I loved visual storytelling and didn't know really nobody I knew was involved with it. You know, I was often, uh, odd man out, I guess is a polite way of putting it. 
Was there a point where you grew out of comics before you professionally got into them? Or is it a straight line from making comics in high school to making comics professionally? No, it's, 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 it's a straight line. Absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> with my lack of an art education and, and, you know, I'm, 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 some people think I'm overly modest. I'm not overly modest. I, my limitations as an artist I've, has always been foremost to me. And, and that's the one thing I will say that I the thing I'm proud of accomplishing is that I never stopped trying to get better. I'm, I'm still trying to get better at doing this. Uh, I don't see the point of doing anything and not getting better. Sometimes people, they have a certain amount of success and they kind of coast, but, um, so I didn't, it took quite some time to get into comics. I mean, it, when I had, I still have somewhere, I guess I was 19 years old, maybe 20 years old. I still have my first rejection letter from Marvel Comics when I sent samples and I got this uh, form letter back from, I believe it was John Romita at the time. And it, it was pretty much, it was very polite, but it was pretty much said, good luck in anything you want to do other than drawing comics. <laughs> and I still have that somewhere. And it was slightly discouraging, but, you know, I, I had no other options. I mean, it, it, you can't, this is part of your, your blood. It's part of your biology, I think. And um, so I kept, I kept doing samples. I did a lot of uh, work for fans magazines. Uh, I started, I had some success, a minor success with doing illustrations for like digest magazines, like galaxy magazine and worlds of if there were like science fiction and, and horror stories. I, you know, and I just kept going to conventions and showing my work to people. But, um, it was a, it was a drawn out process to say the least. And I have to say, I don't, pay as much attention to comics as I used to, because at a certain point, it all sort of melded into this single thing. I think the 90s really sort of comics contracted and, and it was all just superhero stuff, the majority of it. And there were certain style changes that um, I, I just sort of lost interest in it, but I've never stopped loving comics. I still I still love comics. I just, I, I guess I'm old fashioned. I like, I like black on the page. I like, I like feathering. So, so what was the, what was the turning point? So you've, you've graduated from high school. You've, you've put in some samples and been rejected. You've been going to con conventions and, sh and showing your uh, portfolio. What, where did the, where did the sort of the big break or the, the turning point land? Well, I, 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 I kept sending Xeroxes. I went to conventions. Uh, I got up to my early 20s and I started, you know, going to New York and leaving my portfolio at Marvel in DC and waiting and going to conventions. And I got to a certain point to where I started, I would meet with editors or people at conventions and go, you know, you're almost there. 
or you're there, but I don't have anything for you right now. You know, uh, so I, it, it was a, proceed, a procedure of getting to a point to where you realize that maybe you're good enough to get in the door, but then you also you have to deal with the fact that there's so much material going through editor's offices. A lot of people, and at that time, basically, you had two places to work. You had Marvel, you had DC. Um, there were smaller publishers that were coming and going constantly. So my, uh, I guess my big break, if I want to put it that way, as far as comics, is um, I had been attending a, a big convention here in Atlanta. It was called the Atlanta Fantasy Fair. And every year... When, it, when the convention came around, they would print their own comic. That's again, any, any, anytime you can get something through a printing press, it's a learning experience, it's valuable. And I uh, was doing, I co-created a science fiction adventure strip that every year a new chapter would come out and the convention, it was, it was, it was a combination convention, pamphlet and comic book. So at a certain point, what happened was the first thing I would say would, that would be considered professional comic publication is that the, there was a publisher called Dawning, and they produced uh, graphic novels of pre-printed uh, pre material. Uh, Wendy Penny and I think her husband had a series called Elf Quest. That was like a fantasy comic book that had a very strong fan base and dawning got a deal with them and they reprinted the comics in trade paperback and wendy went in and colored the uh, the art and they reprinted it and they were looking for material so it took the the strip it was a thing called light runner it was a kind of a Andre Norton, you know, pre-Star Wars adventure series. And they were interested in it, and I had drawn three chapters. And they said, well, we, we need this much of a page count to, to, to do the book, to make a trade paperback. And they were willing to wait for me to finish it because apparently they were happy with what they were seeing. So it was this bizarre concept, but the, the first chapters of the book, my stuff was so much raw that it wasn't balanced that I went in and I redid the first chapter of the book and then produced the, the balance of the book. It was a 112-page uh, graphic novel in the long run, and I, I co-created it, sort of edited it, I penciled it, I inked it. I drew the word balloons. I did the covers for it, and it was uh, released. They Donning took it. They published it, and so the first thing that I ever had professionally published was something that I had created, penciled, inked, drew the, I colored everything. I mean, it was it was a. So when I went in, finally got in to go into the offices, people said, well, "What have you done?" I dropped a 112-page graphic novel, and they said, well, <laughs> well, what part of it did you do? And I said, all of it. And they said, what do you mean all of it? I said, I created it, I penciled it, I inked it, I colored it, I drew the word balloons, 
And so it was a tangible thing. I mean, it was like this, this was absolute proof that I could do the job. And I got in at Marvel because I, um, there was a convention in Atlanta and I went there with, um, a copy of that book and samples and shooter was the big guest. And so I went, I went to the convention, he was there and I, I came up and brought my portfolio and he was, and he was actually, you know, he was actively looking for people. He was looking for work and I showed him my stuff. And while he said, you know, you, your figures just, if you got this is, but he was like, he said, you know, this is what I've been looking for. I can look at the page and I can tell what's happening. You do storytelling. <laughs> so what he said is, I'm going to try and find you a script. And I'm like, you know, I was, if I could have done a cartwheel, I would have been doing cartwheels. It was quite exciting. Time passed. I mean, the guy was the head of the company and he was very busy. And finally, at a certain point, um, after six months of not of waiting, uh, Chris Claremont, who I had met at the convention, he said, look, you need to come up here and force his hand. You know, I mean, because he's got all this stuff going on all the time. So I uh, went to New York. Chris graciously let me stay at his apartment. Wow. And it sort of forced, you know, I'm there. I'm here. I'm here. Here I am. I'm in New York City. And Shooter came up with a script. And then that turns into a whole nother story that I won't go into. But that's <laughs> that's how it was. I, I, um, I did every single thing I could do to get published. I worked for fanzines. I worked for small publishers. And then I did a graphic novel that I did the whole deal on. And that was kind of like, you know, every people are used to seeing pencils. You know, somebody comes in, they'll show you a handful of pencils or some inks. And I walked in and I put down 112 page printed bound full color graphic novel that I had, um, done for a ludicrously small amount of money but that was my calling card and listeners and viewers curious to read light runner it was reissued in 2017 yes it was uh dover books uh decided they started to look you know they were going to start reprinting comics material and it was reissued and how many pages did you redraw this time i didn't redraw anything <laughs> I, I had the luxury of, of, of just looking at it, looking at everything I did wrong, fighting my gag reflex and say, here. For this, new, for this new edition, did you have the original artwork or original films? Or is the new printing scanned from the original comic? The, the new printing is scanned from the original printing. Okay. It doesn't look awful. <laughs> All right, so you you might suggest if people are interested that they track down the 1983 edition. It, it if they can find it. Okay. It was it was also the, the original edition also was put out as a limited hardback with a dust cover, a slip cover, which unfortunately I did not have anything 
I didn't have any say so about what was done with that. And they put it in white leatherette with bright blue lettering. And it looks like a high school yearbook from Tucson, Arizona, about 1971. I'm just like, God, you know, black leatherette, red lettering for Pete's sake. But the, it, it looks just like it is one of the ugliest things you've ever seen in your life. But it's, you know, it's white, you know, uh, white leatherette. But bless their hearts. I've I've long wondered when you actually sort of got published by by Marvel. I've wondered to myself, how are you so good out of the gate? Because a lot of you know artists, you see them, you know, really developing on the page. That you know, first time they're published, maybe they're not quite quite ready. It looks for for you, for the, your first work at Marvel, uh, it looked very very polished. And now I realise it's because you had a, a single minded determination. Uh, to keep on, you know, drawing for probably what the best part of over a decade without landing a, a major a publisher. So all of that learning has kind of been happening outside of uh, outside of the press, I guess. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, and 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 I do function on this idea that whatever you do, the next thing you do needs to be a little bit better, and. I have mixed feelings about what I did on Joe. I, I had so many limitations in my drawing, but especially with figures, but I, the most important thing to me, and it's always been the most important thing to me is telling a story. And that sometimes gets lost. I think, you know, that certainly there was a period of time with comics where you would flip through a comic and all you saw were huge figures jumping off the panel. I mean, the 90s really sort of, you know, everything turned into a Michael Bay film, if I can be that rude. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, and also, you know, I the people that I chose to study, you know, while it dated my work a little bit, were the, were the people that were great comic storytellers. Ross Andrew is, is an underappreciated artist and a great storyteller. Russ Heath is a great storyteller. I idolized Wally Wood, who was a great storyteller. Uh, another major influence on me was Russ Manning, who did the Tarzan comics. And one of my favorite comic books of all time, which is Magnus Robot Fighter. I actually, I don't own a lot of original comic art, but I have several Russ Manning Magnus pages hanging in my house because I loved him, his work so much. And but it was all storytelling, and I mean, I mean that's literally what got me in the door at Marvel was that you, I think, I think it was Gil Kane, who was very kind to me, the great Gil Kane, and and he one of the things that he told me is is like when you draw a comic book page. If you if you can't take off the dialogue and the captions, the word balloons, everything, if you look at that page and you can't tell what's happening, then you failed. You know, if you can't tell the emotional reactions from the characters, if you're a, as a reader, you don't know what's happening, uh, then you failed. So that was that was always at the core of everything I did was telling a story, Rod. Uh your your sample 
for Marvel, your primary sample was you penciling and inking. There yes. weren't uh, there weren't a lot of people at Marvel in the eighties who were penciling and inking. When you penciled GI Joe, Andy Mashinsky inked your work. Did you have a goal that you would be penciling and inking, or was that that just wasn't going to happen with someone new? Uh, and did you have a relationship with Andy Mashinsky? Well, I I really enjoy doing a piece of art from start to finish, and if you. Uh, a lot of people are surprised if, if they're at conventions and they look through my portfolio because I work in different styles. I have a minimalist style. I idolize Alex Toth. And, and I have some styles that are cartoony. Uh, once I have a style that I do that it's vaguely, vaguely like Mike Mignola, but to work in that sort of way, you have to be able to do the entire job yourself or to, to be able to work with an anchor who understands what you're going to do and complete it. But, you know, you know, I always, I talked about the, 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 the grinding machinery of publication. You, you just don't have enough time. I mean, there are people who are brilliant I mean, I idolize Walt Simonson and, and, you know, when you have to be a, an exceptional talent and you have to be able to work on material where you can have that kind of uh, control. I've met Andy. I, Andy was a, a, a lovely person and I thought that his style was, I mean, I felt, I felt slightly bad because, you know, he would get this stuff with all this detail on it. And, and, and part of the appeal, what I saw in, in GI Joe, what I thought was a large part of the appeal was a toy line was um, that it was set in the military, that there were these vehicles and having grown up around fighter jets, you know, I, I knew that some of the appeal of the book was the equipment and the machinery so I was very big on detail. I like a, a lived-in world. So, but I often, I'm, I'm sure Andy was, <laughs> you know, it, it was. I made a lot of work for the guy, and and I thought he did very good. I mean, and he, there were a lot of people that worked on the book before me that were much better. I mean, Mike Bosberg is a really good artist. I think Frank Springer is a good artist. He, you know. But um, so I never, never really, I, I, I met Andy at a convention and we hung out, but uh, it was, it was never much of a working relationship in that you got to be at the drawing board. You know, I got to be penciling, you got to be inking, but um, he, he, no, he's, I, I was perfectly happy with it. I think, I think Andy was better at the job than I was. And when you got this job, uh, you no longer stayed in New York. You went back to Atlanta. I never lived in New York. I've never, I've never moved out of Atlanta. Um, which sort of inter it, that was part of the problem was that I wasn't there constantly to, you know, to harangue editors, to hang out around the office, but I just, it's expensive to live in New York. <laughs> And I'm trying to, you know, it's just like, well, how am I going to be able to live there and not be in a, you know, or an old refrigerator box under a bridge? And 
I was married at a time at the time that I was trying to break in that thankfully got resolved. And then I, 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 I met a woman that I uh, was crazy about and, and we got married and she had a son from her previous marriage. So relocating to New York then was like, you know, it was out of the question. So I, I did it the hardest possible way you could. I never went to New York. I just uh, went to every convention. I would go up there. You know, th there are times, one time I went up there with a friend of mine and we were going to stay at a buddy. His buddy had an apartment. We were going to stay there. And I got off the, we got off the plane. <laughs> we're in New York. And I'm like, well, where are we going to go? We got to go to this guy's house. He says, well, I got to find him first. <laughs> so we're like, I'm standing in New York City with my portfolio in my hand and like maybe $30. I mean, you know, and we're trying to uh, track down this guy. So we'll have a, an apartment to sleep in for the night because we didn't have the money to go to, you know, to get him a hotel room. So it, it was pretty exciting. And how does how does one go about getting an invite to stay at Chris Claremont's <laughs> place? Well, I had um, I had met Claremont uh, at conventions. My former wife was a cosplayer. She was a very um, she was sort of a, a, a premier a renaissance in cosplaying. It just started coming up, and she uh, made X Men costumes. Wow. And she made Phoenix and Dark Phoenix. She was very attractive. And uh, I think that was my uh, <laughs> in the door. way in with Chris Claremont. But he, he's a lovely person. And um, it was funny because when I came up there and, and like Jim's going to you know, he's going to get you a script. He's working on it. And I'm like, OK. And then he said, well, let's. And he took me around the offices at Marvel to talk to editors and that was a that's a whole nother story and then he said well you know what i'm going to take this guy over to dc and the people at marvel are like well why are you doing that and i know he was kind of hedging the bet and i went to dc and met uh with lynn ween who was a editor and a writer a lovely person a really great guy and um and he was like, he was like the Chris Claremont's like, why have you brought this guy here if he's at Marvel? <laughs> and, and, and he's like, I'm trying to move things along, <laughs> you know, and I'm so unsophisticated. I didn't even understand what was going on. But Lynn Wien was really great. And it was a weird coincidence. too. I had this Iron Man sequences, two page Iron Man sequence that I had done, you know, just for samples. And there was this weird villain at Marvel. There's a guy called the Absorbing Man. Hmm. He was a he was a Thor villain, but he was dressed like a guy in a chain gang. He actually had like a a ball and chain, but he had the ability to absorb. He would turn into whatever he touched. He'd be steel or concrete. I'm pretty sure he was a Thor villain, but it was it was just so bizarre and absurd. I loved it. So I had this sequence, you know, and it was a splash page of like Iron Man and Crusher Creel smashing out of an airliner falling into the camera. And so I go to DC and I'm doing this stuff and Lynn Wien goes, oh, wow. And he picks it up, Crusher Creel, you know, the absorbing man's my favorite villain in Marvel. 
it's like that's really strange <laughs> but he was like well you know i'll show your stuff around they made copies he showed stuff around and time passed and i uh finally i got a call from marvel and that was to do a fill-in on gi joe and i'm like oh my god all these years all this i'm trying to do the next day literally the next day i got a phone call from marv wolfman wanting to know if i wanted to draw a sample issue of the vigilante which was dc's version of the punisher and after all that time, all the trips, all this stuff, everything, it's like one day I get the call from Marvel, the next day I get the call from DC. And I told Marv, it's like, I would love to do it, but when does it have to be done? I just got accepted a fill-in at Marvel. And I think I kind of upset him. I got him, I, I was gracious about it, but he was like, I'm going to give this guy his career. And 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 that was it. So it's a very peculiar kind of thing. That story I hadn't thought about that story for a long time. But I had banged my head against the wall and stood in the rain and left my portfolio and talked and talked and waited and waited. And one day Marvel calls me, and the next day DC called me. That's amazing. And this is several months afterwards. And you also got got spotlighted in Marvel Age as well, which I guess must have been before you were offered the. G.I. Joe gig that um, uh, you were featured as a new talent. Yes. <laughs> well, there's an involved story behind that, but I'm, I'm trying to be. Uh... <laughs> I got the door. I got in the door at Marvel. I got caught up. There was a lot of inner office politics at Marvel, and I sort of walked into the middle of it. Oh, no. And <laughs> Does, anyway. is, that, is that something like. Um, one editor is responsible for certain characters, certain books. Another editor is responsible for different characters, different books, or one artist is supposed to stay with one editor, that kind of thing. It was something like that. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, there's no simple way of explaining this. Uh, a script was given to me, and the script that was given to me had already been rejected by the editor of the book oh, no. and the person who gave me that script did not know that and there somebody you know it's a long involved story and you but and you drew that script is that is that no okay, okay. i started working on the script and then this is all inter office stuff and personalities and i don't want to get into it too much but the plug was pulled on the job that I was given. And I, it, it was a difficult situation. <laughs> but then, but, and I thought I was done at Marvel because I got into the middle of this. I walked in there, you know, la di da di da. This is the great thing. And then I sort of had inner office conflicts blow up in my face. A lot of people don't know this story. And um, I had started working on the story. It was a terrible story. <laughs> the editor on that, who had rejected that script, said, I was told from someone who firsthand knew it, 
said that the editor who rejected the story said it was the worst piece of you-know-what that had crossed his desk in two decades. So I thought I had got in the door and then I got blown out of it. And I came back to Atlanta and I was very depressed. And time passed. I went to a convention in Atlanta and the guys, the editors, Bob Budiansky and Jim Salakrup did Marvel Age. And they saw my stuff at the con and they went, wow, this is really good stuff. We'd, we'd like copies of this and we could put this in our Marvel Age as possible new talent. They didn't know the story of what had happened. <laughs> And then when this, and if you read there, it's like, oh, we had a little catching up to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what that was. <laughs> so uh, without naming names, uh, I, I thought I had got in the door at Marvel. I got kicked out the door at the same time, like uh, less than a week later. And then time passed. And then editors at Marvel who were at the convention and didn't know any of that story said, wow, we're going to publish you in a Marvel comic. We're going to show, see if we can get you new talent. And I got this big, rather elaborate spread. <laughs> Sorry. I had, yeah, <laughs> it's no, it's a, it's, it's a funny story. Now, all these years later, <laughs> um, when you were drawing G.I. Joe, what reference were you getting for the action figures and the vehicles? Well, they gave them all to me. The toys. I had the world's greatest G.I. Joe toy collection. Okay. And, and like an idiot, I took them out of the boxes. I put them together like so I could draw them from different angles. And then like an idiot, later on, after I was done with the book, I gave them, everybody I knew who had kids, I gave them all to. I just gave them all away. If I left them in the box, God only knows. Let's not talk about money. Right. If you'd left them in the box, though, you, you wouldn't have drawn the book very well and you wouldn't have stayed on the book. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of it. But I did, I did have one of the great G.I. Joe collections in the world because <laughs> I, I just had tons of it. I kept one G.I. Joe toy. I have one toy. I'll, I'm going to be off camera for just one second. <laughs> Mark, place your bets. It's probably not the uh, flag. What will it be? Uh, mm. What could it be? What could it possibly be? Are you ready? Oh, Moa. Oh, neat. Yep. Essentially, their version of the M1 Abrams. Nice. And it's powered. That's great. Yeah, I'm very fond of tanks, so that's 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 the single toy. It's one of the most impressive ones. It's beautifully detailed, but that's the single GI Joe. I unfortunately, like an idiot, gave them all away. But I had the uh, my stepson got all the aircraft. He's he's actually a pilot. He he's an airline pilot. But I you know. But that's the single uh, one I got left. But yeah, at one point you go into my studio 
well, it's ridiculous to say it's any different now. I mean, I have more toys in here than any 68-year-old man should, should have. <laughs> I, I think, Rod, I think actually it's the it's the keeping of toys and the drawing of adventure that is keeping you young. And so it's not a bad thing that you have toys, you have children's objects in your studio. I think it's an excellent thing. Well, it... I also, you know, I'm a designer. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an art, an artist, but I'm, I think I'm more of a designer than a fine artist, and I love design. I mean, I, if I'd had the money for an education, I would have liked to have gone to, you know, a design school. I mean, I would have been perfectly happy designing cars if I could have. I would have made a lot more money. But I, I, I love, I love design of all kinds. So there's a, there is a lot to be said for that. I mean, my feeling is you have to grow old, but you don't have to grow up. I mean, I don't like grownups. I have everything that's wrong with the world <laughs> across the board is the direct responsibility of grownups. Mm, those guys. And, you know, you pay your bills. I mean, <laughs> I, I have earned back when it mattered, I had quite a reputation. It's like, if you need something done, give it to this guy, it'll get done. You know, I always, I got books that nobody else wanted to draw because they were difficult. And I always got them and they were behind schedule. So I was lucky to do what I, I love to do. So when you were given the first issue of G.I. Joe to draw, you described that as a tryout. So, so it wasn't given to you as a full-time gig. It was Let's see what you can do. And uh, if you do it well, then maybe there's more. Well, that that's well, every job you ever do is a tryout in some <laughs> ways. There were, um, well, my understanding is Joe was uh, often late because it's so demanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, the early issues of Joe, there were what, like eight characters and five vehicles or something. I mean, I, I got handed the book at a time when the, the line exploded and I, I was keeping track of 40 or 50 different characters with different uniforms and all these vehicles. But I did the fill in and they were trying to balance getting on time. And there was a partial an issue where multiple people worked on it. Uh, a very talented guy named Mark Bright. It was like there's three or four different artists that drew it. I don't remember which issue it was. It starts off with a ship, like a freighter at sea yeah. or something. 35. 35. And there's like, yeah, there's so there's there's Mark Bright, who is a very talented guy. I really liked him. I think he 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 went to DC and drew Green Lantern. Yeah. But he was better than I am, certainly was at the time. And um <laughs> I I don't quite know the process, but um, I, I do. I did have a hand. I have an ability to draw technically, so the vehicles, the tanks, aircraft, all that sort of stuff, I was able to do. And I think that was anathema to a lot of guys who worked on the book. I think what Mark is partially asking is, you drew issue thirty one. Wait, wait, that's going to be the question. What was what was the first? Do you remember the first issue that you worked on? What was the story that you drew for, as your first? The first issue? issue that I drew 
was the one where I'm pretty sure the first one I drew was the one where Destro and uh, some other Cobra guys track down Snake Eyes right. to his mm -hmm. cabin. Yeah, yeah, that is that the mountains. Mm -hmm. And Firefly is in it. Uh, it drops a satchel bomb down into his cabin. That's yeah, so that's that's the first one. So I think I think what Mark might be getting at is you drew thirty one, and then yes. Frank Springer drew thirty two and thirty three, and your full regular run begins with thirty four. And I th I think what Mark and I are trying to figure out is. At what point in the schedule does Marvel sort of get back on track or realize it's back on track? Or it's like, okay, this new kid, if we put him, Springer's already doing 32 and Wiggum's doing 31. We'll have Springer do, this is my guess. We'll have Springer do 33. And then when we get the script for 30, the plot for 34, the new guy will start on that, something like that to sort of write the ship. I I would yeah that sounds right to me. Is thirty four the fighter jet? That's right. Yeah, shakedown. Shakedown. Yeah, that's <clears throat> over the years at, at cons and a, a lot of people, a lot of kids. They, it's like I've had kids. Well, they're not kids anymore, but I've had people <laughs> tell me that they never read comic and they saw that issue on the stand with. You know, a lot of it were those incredible covers that Mike Zek did. I mean, those G.I. Joe covers by that guy were wonderful. I think Hama designed them, but I'm, I, you know, yeah. I was 800, 900 miles away. I didn't really know. But yeah, at some point I had drawn, a, I started drawing several issues. And at some point I was on the phone or my former wife was on the phone with Don Daly, who was an assistant editor, and kind of like, well, well, is he drawing the book or not? Because nobody, you know, I wasn't officially told, here you go, kid. <laughs> and the assistant editor said, oh, yeah, he's drawing the book. So I'm like, well, that would have been a nice thing. To, you know, I would have liked that phone call instead <laughs> of like hearing it secondhand. And, and as you first gig sort of on that issue 31 um what was uh what was your speed like um because obviously there's this going to be this tension you know get it to them quick but also this is my first time doing a monthly book and i want it to be as good as i can possibly make it um how, how do you think you managed that oh yeah it was ridiculously over detail overly detailed but uh, you know i've I've always felt, that in, and certainly in books like this, that detail is part of it. Mm. You know, I think there was a certain, a, a lot of kids who read the book liked my work because I, I had a realistic, detailed style. Oh, I'm sitting here looking at this stuff. Oh, God, I was so terrible. <laughs> I think it's amazing. But, um, <laughs> but, but and, and that's what it was. It, it, it just, as far as that, I believe I was doing, I believe I did it. Well, they, you know, they told me it had to be gotten in, but I don't think I was doing better than five pages a week. I don't think so. 
But it, it was that weird, ambiguous thing of like, there's multiple people working on multiple issues trying to get ahead. I don't think I was slow. I think I was, I was reliable for a guy, right. You know, I would say green, but um, I, I had been published. I had done a graphic novel, but uh, I was, I would say it took me a full month to draw the book. I, I could be wrong. There's a, thousands of pages between then and now. Did you find yourself speeding up significantly as you went along that you could um, have more confidence in yourself, skimp in the detail and just maybe a little bit, not skimp is not the right word, but but maybe not not do as much detail and, and then know that you can hit a certain amount of pages per per week and make sure that, that there's, there's no risk of not hitting the deadline? You know, on Joe, it it, it, it was up and down. I, I have to admit, it, it was often daunting. Just you know, before you before you go to the drawing board and before you put a line on the paper, I got to dig up reference on this guy and this guy and this guy and, and this tank and this vehicle. So it it was daunting to say the mm -hmm. least. And some issues I think came out, you know, uh, easier than others because there was a, a through line. There was, there was, uh, or there was a lot of action. Mm. I mean, I picked up steam. I guess it was the Cobra, I, the in, invasion of Cobra Island, where they raise the island right. and mm -hmm. Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow fight together. There was so much action in like those issues. It's like I, I drew the giant tidal wave splash page which is a, an homage to the japanese printmaker hokusai so it was it was always difficult and and taxing in that you know i had so many things i was still weak in so many things that it it was always daunting i don't think i ever got up to speed in a way that made them happy but there are some issues I look back on fondly. I like the fighter jet issue. I like the 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 battle on um, Cobra Island, and there was a later issue that was um, with the the dreadnoughts, the, the thunder machine. Mm -hmm. There was like an issue that was like a, a high speed chase through the most of the issue, and I, I look back fondly on that issue because it, I, I had a really clear through line. Uh, on 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 the action and it kind of was was easier to do. Rod, you have worked with many different writers, and uh, you have worked presumably from plot quote Marvel style and also from full script. How was it to work with Larry Hama, and how how has it been in your career to work Marvel method? Well. Hama, Hama was Marvel method, wasn't he? Yes. Yes. Well, see, that was probably part of the problem for me to pick up steam because of, of keeping track of everybody that was going to be in the book and all of that stuff and sort of, you know, trying to, to get a handle on the story and move along. As far as scripts go, I'm I I kind of prefer writers who do a full script 
because, and this is not towards Larry, who knows what he's doing, or some writers, but some writers, I think, forget that they're writing a comic book and they think they're writing a novel. And because they're not forced to visualize what's going to go on the page, sometimes you can get a, a you know, a Marvel style script and it's murder uh, because they've simply got, you've got no breathing room because there's too much story. But um, also on the, uh, on the negative, on the flip side of that, when you have a, a writer who's doing a full script and they're not visual either, it's very restrictive. Mm. Um, I kind of prefer full scripts simply because it, I think, you know, it gets a little more work out of the writer. You know, the writer has to focus a little more and understand what's going to be on the page. Like I've, I've said, I, I really loved working with um, Chuck Dixon because he just gave you so much room. You know, it's like five pages, five panels on a page, five panels on a page. Oh, this page is one panel. Uh, these two pages are one panel. The, you know, the writer who I worked with who actually taught me and made me a better artist was when I went to uh, DC. I, I was off of Joe and I, I, I wandered around the wasteland of Marvel. I was trapped in the new universe for a few, <laughs> a sports comic book of all things, the least sports minded guy. Uh, it was a, superhero football player or something that the one thing that was wonderful about that is that the editor on the book got me to uh inked by an artist named tony de zuniga i'm probably mispronouncing his name he was an artist a comic artist i think originally from the philippines brilliant i mean just a fantastic artist and i i put my stuff in and you, you develop a kind of tunnel vision sometimes. You know, you're trying to figure out, how can I do this better? How can I do that better? And Dezuniga was just a master craftsman and a brilliant artist. And he inked my stuff and he, he didn't redraw it, but when he inked it, he subtly changed everything. And when I saw the printed book, it was, it was a revelation. There was, there was so many bad habits that I had that Dezuniga just wiped out. And I wish I could say it applied it instantly, but it was a transformative event. Can you give you know? us an example of one or two of those bad habits, a specific? Well, you know, here, here's the, the, the primary weakness that happens with a lot of guys. And certainly for me, because I had no art education, I learned to draw from looking at comics. And you can learn a lot of good things from you know, looking at the work of other artists, but you can also pick up bad habits or, you know, or you're, you, you know, it's, it always helped. I never did any life drawing. I was intimidated by it. And that one of the things that he did is the way that I draw eyes, you know, I'm, uh, I'm trying to do Barry Smith's eyes or I'm trying and, and, you know, I was, I was this hodgepodge of, a lot of times when you look at my work, I, I you you can look at my work and say, there's Russ Heath, there's Wally Wood, that's Russ Manning, you know, because these were, I don't want to lay the guilt on them, but they were my teachers, you know, by default. 
and Dezuniga uh, changed the way I did faces. There were there were just bad comic book art habits that I had picked up, and it was just like, oh my god, just this much of a change validates the drawing completely, and and it was it was a great learning experience. Um, and when I went to uh, so I wandered around the wasteland, um, the new universe, and then kind of went months without getting any work because, you know, I, I was stylization was really taking hold in comics. We, we were at the dawn of the age of the image look, stuff like that. And I was having a hard time finding work. And I was at a convention begging for work. And uh, an art director from First Comics came along. And they had this project called Team Yankee. And it's an adaption of a best-selling, that's a guy, Harold Coyle. He was kind of a Tom Clancy, but he wrote hardcore military stuff. And Team Yankee was a novel he wrote about what a land war in Europe between Russia and the uh, allies would be like. And they were trying to do this and what was going to happen was it was going to be a six issue comic miniseries and then berkeley books would publish it as a, a graphic novel they'd combine it and they were losing their mind because they had they had some guys who worked at first comics and they did samples and they sent the samples to the writer and he's like what is this because <laughs> you know he didn't read comics he didn't want to see soldiers that look like superheroes so they were going to throw the project away. And I'm at the con, and I wish I could remember the art director's name. But he's like, oh, you're G.I. Joe. You draw tanks, don't you? And I'm like, yes. And they had this project, and it was about to fall apart. And they said, well, would you do two sample pages so that we could see if we could get the writer on board to do this? So I did a two-page combat sequence with an M1 Abrams tank and, you know, and I got it, I did all the detail. I, you know, it's like, this is what the targeting system inside an Abrams tank looks like. And did it my realistic, did my best Russ Heath haunted tank that I could do. And they sent it to the writer and he said, oh, okay, now you can do it. I also did that with a Snake Plissken comic where they sent superhero stuff to John Carpenter and Carpenter said, what is this crap? So they said, well, you, this was at Malibu. I was like, well, this isn't going to work. Who do we give it to? Uh, that wig. I'm <laughs> and, and John Carr, I sent the stuff. I did a likeness. I love Escape from New York. So I did, I did a, a, some samples of Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. They said, well, we can't afford to give Kurt any money. <laughs> so can you draw Snake Plissken and make him? So I made him kind of a John Buscema guy. <laughs> and they sent it to John Carpenter. And John Carpenter said, oh. Oh, okay. Now you can do the comic book. So wait, you you were doing it to not look like, to not use a like a, an actor likeness. Yes, <laughs> because because they didn't uh, apparently some kind. It would have cost them money to use Kurt Russell's likeness. They bought the rights to make a comic of this movie property, but not the additional rights to include the likeness. actor likeness. Yeah. So. Um, and I, this is the weird thing. I had tried a, a, with a few editors years before at Marvel to convince them to maybe try and do a Snake Plissken comic book. 
because I, I I love Escape from Escape from LA. I do not like, but I love <laughs> Escape from New York. So, and I was utterly thrilled to do that. I, you know what? Here's another story. <laughs> I, I where I came riding in at the last minute and saved the maiden. Malibu was going to do a Terminator miniseries. And then the, 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 this, it was going to start literally right at the end of Terminator 2. The first page of the, of the first issue is Sarah Connor and John Connor driving down the highway at night. And they, uh, Malibu had one of their guys, I don't know his name, but a superhero guy. And they sent it to Jim Cameron and, and the people that work with Jim Cameron. And they said, what is this crap? And so the people at Malibu said, well, would you maybe do a couple of sample? I had not realized how many times I pulled people's asses out of the fire. Oh, my God. So I did a two-page sequence of Sarah Connor and John Connor driving down the highway as if right at the end of Terminator 2, the story keeps going. And there was a two-page sequence. They drive up on a trailer and one of one of Sarah Connor's old, you know, underground contacts comes out and threatens him with a gun. So, okay, send it to them. James Cameron and the people there went, oh, okay, this is okay. You can do it now. So um, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, you know, they couldn't have just picked me to begin with, you know, so... God, I don't even know what the hell story I was telling. Now, <laughs> I think it, it... you said you said that uh, there was an editor or a writer at DC who, from whom you learned a lot oh, after you right. after you left Marvel after New York. Right, and after I did the the, the Team Yankee, which um... right, so Team Yankee for our listeners and viewers, that's 1988 and 1989, and you're doing Star Trek comics starting in 1990, I believe. Yes. Well. No, what happened? <laughs> it's funny. And I was out of work for forever. And then I got the Team Yankee job. But first comics was barely surviving. And they were slow to pay, but I needed the money. And, and at a certain point, I'm, I'm in the middle of this project. And I think that's when I got some, some G.I. Joe fill-ins to do. That may, I, it's ambiguous. But um, so I did Team Yankee, which is a six issue miniseries, Realistic Land War. I'm, I'm actually quite proud of that. It was, you know, realistic soldiers, realistic combat. It was uh, made in, and, and it's, you can occasionally find it in the trade paperback. I'm sure it's in a dollar bin somewhere. And then while I was trying to finish that up and I had another, I had gone without work for eight months and then suddenly I'm getting work from everybody. And while I'm finishing up the Team Yankee project, Mike Carlin, who I had met at DC, at Marvel Comics a few years before, was working at DC and called me up and wanted to know if I wanted to try out to do Doc Savage, which... I love Doc Savage. There's, I don't have many pictures of my childhood, but there's a picture of me as a little kid. <clears throat> I don't know exactly when it was, but Bantam, I think it was Bantam, started reprinting the Doc Savage novels 
in paperback. So those fantastic covers by James Bama. And there's actually a picture of me as a dorky little kid with a flat top and sitting on the table in the background is the first issue, the first printing of a uh, Doc Savage. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, uh, yeah, Mike, I'd love to do this. And he said, well, he's only going to do it for six issues, but Denny O'Neill is going to write it because Denny wrote a miniseries with the Kubert brothers on Doc Savage. And I'm like, I'm freaked out because I, Denny's one of the great writers in American comics. I mean, he, Denny was brilliant. The, the Batman stuff he did with Neil Adams was amazing. And he's like, Denny's going to write like the first six issues. And if we can, we can get together on this, you know, you, and so I'm like vibrating, you know, cause like, you know, I, you know, there's that Wayne world thing of I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And I really wasn't, but Denny's, I got Denny's scripts and they were so brilliant in the, in, in comic science, you know, he, he, Denny's one of these guys, well, he was one of those guys who as a writer completely understood the mechanisms of the page and telling the story. And I um, literally got better with every issue I drew because the scripts were so good that I read them and I, you know, I instantly saw them. And that was, you know, that was a huge jump for me was to work with Denny. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody else I've worked with, but that was, that was somebody whose scripts struck a chord with me. And they were, they were just so clear that um, I actually learned from it. I can fix, I can fix my timeline a little bit. Uh, uh, Doc Savage runs 24 issues uh, starting in, uh, starting in 1990 and, uh, Rod, you drew almost every issue, and Denny O'Neill did write the first six. And Star Trek yeah. comes after this, starting in '93. Yeah. Well, I went to the Shadow after Doc Savage, mm -hmm. it, which is a peculiar thing. Um, at a certain point, you know, DC was doing a, a Shadow comic that was being produced by Eduardo Barreto, who's a brilliant artist from Argentina, Argentina, Uruguay, South American wonderful, wonderful artist, amazing guy. And DC decided, well, we've got Doc Savage. We've got the shadow. This has never happened before. We're going to have a crossover and we're going to have Doc Savage and the shadow together. Now, the only pulp character that I love more than Doc Savage is the shadow. So when I get the call from Mike Carlin, it's like, well, what you're going to do is you're going to do layouts and Eduardo is going to do finishes. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like bounced off the walls for two days. And we did a four issue miniseries where Mike Barr was writing Doc Savage at the time. And I think Gerard Jones was writing the shadow and I was doing layouts. Now my layouts are what most people consider finished pencils. People say, well, you should loosen up. And I'm like, tell it to my brain. This, this is the way I see it. I, I go from doodle doodle to the finished drawing. I don't, I don't do a lot of sketching in between. And uh, Barreto was just amazing. And it was a, a wonderful experience. So Doc Savage got canceled. And at the same time that Doc Savage got canceled, Eduardo Barreto got offers of uh, bigger books at D.C., and so 
I got a call from Mike Harland, or I think maybe the editor on the shadow. He said, well, you're out of work. You want to do the shadow now? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I went from Doc Savage for two years. I did the shadow for a year. It was very interesting because uh, I love all this stuff in the 1930s. I know, you know, I'd read a lot of the shadow stuff. So it was very exciting. I, I'm not going to, I don't like to run people down, but the guy that they put on as the anchor was Eduardo Barreto's assistant. And I don't think he quite understood that you're not supposed to change the art. So he would, he would take the scarf off the shadow's face. And, it, and, it, and in a double issue murder mystery, there was a woman who's supposed to be kind of a, a somewhat over the hill showgirl who ends up being the villain in the end. So she was chubby. Uh, I made her look like the actress Joan Blondell, who's a lovely person. And he decided to redraw the woman to look like his girlfriend. So when you get to the second part of the story, this woman who's supposed to be in her early 50s, in the previous issue, looks like Farrah Fawcett. So it was a little upsetting. And the book, Michael Golden tried for a while to be an editor. And he took over The Shadow. And he's like, I like what you're doing. You know, it's like, I have some suggestions. And I'm like, well, anything you want to say, I'm going to listen to. And he said, well, what do you think of the anchor? And I said, well, you know, I wish he wouldn't change things. And Golden was like, he changed things and apparently fired the guy that day. I didn't go out to get him fired. And he said, I'll get you better anchors. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm down with that. So we did a few issues of the shadow and I, he finally got me to work with a, an inker named John Beatty and Beatty's an excellent inker and completely understood what I was intending to do. So we did one issue together and all the stuff that I had changed in my drawing, because I was trying to compensate for the inker who was previous, I threw that out and we instantly clicked and it was very exciting. And the sales on the book went up immediately. I actually got a royalty check. But with the sales going up, somebody at DC decided, well, they don't want to have licensed material anymore. So while the sales were going up, they canceled the shadow. And it went to Dark Horse. So, and that's, and God bless Michael Golden. Uh, I was out of work at the shadow and golden knew that I met deadlines. I mean, I had been behind at one point. He said, my, I said, Mike, I I've got to have a, a vacation. I got to have a week off. And he said, well, we're so close. He said, if you want to take a week off, you'd have to draw two issues in one month. And I said, okay. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I did it. And he said, well, I can't believe it. You did it. And you didn't lose any detail or anything. You can go lay on the beach for a week. When the shadow was canceled, he ran around and looked around DC and got me work. And they needed somebody to draw an issue of Star Trek. And they're, and it's been that thing over and over again. Well, you can draw tanks, but can you can't draw this? And I'm like, yeah, I can draw that. If you can draw, you can draw. So, I, you know, it's like, oh, you're the old-fashioned guy. So I got an issue of Star Trek to draw, and I like Star Trek a lot. And I like spaceships. I mean, I, the first thing I ever did that was published was science fiction. 
So I kicked out the jams on it and then they gave me Star Trek. So, oh, oh, you're the guy who draws old fashioned. You're the guy who draws tanks. Oh, you're the guy who draws this. You're the guy. Jake, I, I draw tanks. I draw Terminators. I draw 1936 Auburn Roadsters. I, you know, come on. <laughs> Can I ask? Um, so you were referring to Denny O'Neill as the writer at DC from whom you learned so much. Yep. Did the two of you talk a lot or was it just sort of you were getting the scripts? I was getting the scripts. Okay. But you didn't talk on the phone and bat stuff. No. Or, okay. So no, you, you, I mean, were, you were learning uh, sort of by example and, and structurally about writing. Is that what you mean? The writer from whom you learned the most? Well, um, some writers have a, a, a good sense of pacing and some writers have a good sense of drama and some writers don't have either one. And some writers know know how much can go onto a page, and some writers don't. Denny was he absolutely understood everything about comics, the mechanics of it, not just the you know, not just the poetry, not just the dialogue, but he understood the mechanism of the story. So when you'd look at a, a page of script, it was just like you, you could just see it. You know, there was there was no ambiguity. You know, he, this panel here, you lead to this. This is going to be this has to be the master shot. This has to be this is the page turner. And and it's like you just you know, it's it's like working, you know, with with a great filmmaker, someone who knows how to write, you know, someone who knows how to write a script and think visually. And no, I never I never talked to Denny. I mean, I, I met him at Marvel and. Uh, a few years ago, he came down. He was getting an award at the Jimmy Carter Center, and I, I went down there to see him, just you know, to tell him what he had done for me. But it was simply a process of, you know, when you get the the, the proper blueprint to build a house, there's, you know, the house goes up. It, that's just what it is, and that's what what it was with Denny. He, you know, you could see his sense of drama. And you could understand that he knew what, where to give you breathing room, you know, where to break the story on the page. And as a contrast, working at Marvel and on GI Joe, particularly with the with the Marvel method, where it's more you're given a description and and the detail is is left to you about how to construct the the panels and the the you know the the expression on a face, for example. Do you feel like you know you're almost the the co-writer on a book like that because there is so much that is left for you to to interpret on on the page yourself? Yeah, I would I would say so. I would I would. Here's the deal. I, I'm not going to get involved in politics. And a lot of people have very uh, deep feelings about uh, the situation, but Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were the co-writers of everything they did at Marvel. The, 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 it, and, and they just, Ditko got a little bit of credit sometimes. He really did. But those, that procedure is, is um, I think it's, it's very difficult to, 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 um, to not suggest that some aspects of the work that Kirby and Ditko did they were not given credit for, and that they are largely 
a part of the entire Marvel universe being formed. So it, it to me, it, it, it's, it's, it's always tricky to, to work from um, a, a Marvel style script. It, it really depends. Now, if, if it's something simple, you know, if it's like, like a daredevil where, you know, you're, you're tracking one or two figures uh, through a sequence, it, it's not that difficult. But you really, it, when you're working for Marvel script, you really are, you know, you're, you're, you're not just the director and, and the uh, director of photography, but you're working on the script. So it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. I know some artists prefer that. But um, to me, I always, I always kind of preferred uh, a full script. Before we before we get to to the modern more modern era, just in in that classic Marvel run, I saw in a, in an interview you referenced that uh, you were once flown to New York so that Larry could uh, in, sh- show you how to draw at high speed. Can you tell us about that experience? Um. Mm, no. <laughs> no it, it yes it was the uh learn how to draw a comic book overnight thing larry did that with a lot of artists um and you know what his his idea was that i mean i think what he actually said at some point he says you shouldn't spend any more time designing a page than it takes for a kid to read it and I, I I can't think that way, and I I did do okay, but that that was one of the worst days oh. of my life because I <laughs> because I I don't I don't like I don't go to cons to draw very much. I don't like being around people when I'm trying to work. I like my focus and being in a room with a bunch of people that I don't know standing around looking over my shoulder. And it, it, it was it was a kind of torture for me. It, it was it was weird. It, it was very strange. I, I understand the the validity of it. And when it's, you know, I think it was a Moon Knight story or something. Okay. There were several people in there who were all drawing it. And when it's just one guy running around jumping on rooftops, yeah, I can I can I can do it that way. I learned to visualize, but at that point I was still so overwhelmed by everything. And I got to be honest, GI Joe was a pain in the butt to draw. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got all the equipment you've got all these characters It was very complicated. And, you know, it, it, I was just something that I, um, it was, it was, a, it was a long day. It was a very long day. I, and, well, here's the best thing about it. I, I do see the validity of it. And I did I did do fairly well. And I'm like, and then I'm saying, well, well, it's one guy running around jumping on a rooftop. It's pretty easy to, to figure that out. It's not that complicated. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, <laughs> that very day, when I was leaving this, I'm covered in sweat. <laughs> I'm, I'm freaked out. I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm getting ready to leave. Marvel had two elevators. One of the elevators was down. So we, I had to wait for the other elevator to come up. So the, the one is being repaired. 
So one, the elevator comes up. I get on the elevator. It's very crowded. There is a guy who had been in Marvel the whole day trying to get work as a writer. And he was devastated. You know, he, you take a lot of body blows in comics. I, I think people sometimes were just a little bit more blunt than they should be. But, you know, a lot of them live in New York. So that's just the way life is. When you're a you know a wannabe and you're out of you're you're nervous and you feel out of your depth you can that stuff can kind of wear on you and he'd had a bad day so he's literally in a corner kind of crouched down and say out loud going I don't know why nobody doesn't like my work I don't understand I've been here all day I'm like oh my god this is all the way down. And we got down between two floors and the elevator that I was on broke between floors. So I had been in marble all day long with people all over my shoulders. And I am now trapped in an elevator with a writer who's about to have a nervous breakdown. And there's an, an, an older lady who reminded me very much of uh the woman who played Edith on uh, the, the Archie Bunker show, uh, Jean Stapleton. And when the elevator broke down, that's when I found out that she's claustrophobic. So what happens is that for almost two hours, I am trapped in the elevator between floors in Marvel Comics. And for an hour, they're trying to get it to go. And this woman is in hysterics and this guy sitting in the corner is like i don't understand and i'm just like all i want to do is get to grand central station and go to that bar and have a drink <laughs> and after an hour of them working on it you know we're listening we're hearing this thing on the phone and the guy who's talking on the phone turned and i said they can't fix it they have to fix the other elevator first and come up and get you so for two hours i'm trapped in an elevator with a claustrophobic old lady and and it was there's no air they finally get the elevator up and what they're going to do is they take out this panel and we have to climb through to get into the other elevator and the old lady sorry she's an old lady really goes psychotic but we finally get in there. We get down two more than two hours after I left the learn how to draw a comic in one day kid class. I spent trapped in an elevator at Marvel and walked out into the streets of New York and said, you know, maybe I could just walk into traffic and this day would be complete. And that's why I don't have particularly fond memories of that day, not just drawing and, and, and having people around me and trying to concentrate. At the end of all that, I was trapped in an elevator at Marvel for two hours. So that's the story that nobody ever told about the learn how to draw a comic book in one day <laughs> class. So that's the inside scoop, kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a, a, just a, a an example page, sort of just to illustrate something which you know really strikes me as I look at 
um, as I look at your pages, which is like the use of, I mean, the clarity of the storytelling over above anything else. There's never any doubt as to what is going on on a on a, a Rod Wiggum G.I. Joe page, but also the use of silhouettes to to break things up and, and sort of just, I guess, make make the page uh, um, this this is this isn't a good way of describing it make the page easier on on the eye so we've got for example the sequence here with flint getting a beat down from from the eels and on another page we've got here some uh cobras rappelling down on the on the line um and just you know some great just each panel is so different but but also the use of blacks to to make it pop um is, is something that really strikes me well, a, a lot of this, you want to mix up your design, but silhouettes, you, you're creating a mood and it sort of breaks the amount of data into a different uh, packet. It's like um, I learned an awful lot. Most of what I learned for, from storytelling as far as drama kind of comes from Joe Kubert. Um, uh, uh, he's a great storyteller. And he was always, he was always, you know, he would do surprising things. There'd be an intimate scene with somebody, and then suddenly he would pull the camera way back in the conversation. You would have these small figures in the distance, but you would see what was going on all around them. It's like the, the Tarzan stuff he did for DC was really beautiful that way. So it's drama. It also helps, it calms your eyes down. There's, I mean, there's ridiculous amounts of, of detail and data on this stuff. Mm. Sometimes I was just too crazy, <laughs> but it's it's drama. I don't think we got a lot of this on the in the printed book. I think some of some of this nuance got lost. Yeah, and, and um, well, GI Joe was the first book at Marvel where they started using the flexographic press, which was this super high speed press. And it uh, just one of the worst innovations in printing, period, ever. It, it, and the colors were also incredibly vivid. I mean, a hundred percent yellow printed on that thing, you, you know, it, it would burn your retinas out. <laughs> but you know, I was—it's it, drama. I, I watch a lot of—I'm a huge film fan, and I've always appreciated lighting, and and mood. And sometimes there's so much data going on that that you, silhouettes give you something to focus on, and it pulls you into a different space in what's going, you know, what's happening in the situation. I'm not, I'm not putting this very clearly, but um, Rod, I, if if I may, I think part of what you're saying here is using different wording for what you said earlier, which is that every page you draw, but also this page in particular is designed, that you're making choices. And as Mark said, sort of every panel is different. So we've got this, technically it's a long shot because we see the full bodies, this, this silhouette on the first panel. And then in the second panel, we've got this extreme long shot because we see sort of a, bu a bunch of people and all the stuff happening around them. But there's even information in the extreme foreground where we're looking past that sort of control console. And then there's this compositional element in both of the first two panels where there's there's some some framing on the top. And then similarly in panels three and four and five, the, the point of view keeps changing. 
the amount of information keeps changing, right? Panel three is intimate because we're right over his shoulder. Panel two, we're separated by this, whatever it is, a sewer grate or a, a drainage pipe grate. And yet, to Mark's point, it's all completely clear. And uh, I was thinking when you were talking about Gil Thorpe at the beginning of our interview, because uh, I looked at a few strips before we started talking, and you know, these three tiny squares on weekdays, you know, a panel is like head and shoulders, and then another panel is a hand, and then another panel is a head and a shoulder, and then the person's head that they're talking to, and that's sort of all you get. And I, I, I was thinking as you were saying it, oh, Gil Thorpe is, isn't drawn as much as it's designed. Like you're just carving up these squares into two or three or four or five bits of information, shoulder, head, background. Yeah. You know, hand, arm, soccer ball, and that's it. And then leaving space for the word balloon. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also you, you have to take in, um, on, on a comic strip, now that the, the, the size, I mean, a lot of people get them online, but I think they still are occasionally printed, physically printed in newspapers. I hope so. But you, you, you have these tiny spaces, and what you have to do is have a defined image, and you have to distill it down to what's the most important thing in the situation. And, and also, because I see a lot of people that draw comic strips now, I mean... It, it's sad that there's almost no adventure straps left, but a lot of people, I, you, you see it and it's like, it's a, two people sitting talking, then it's a closer to two people's talking. And then it's a closer person talking and you're just getting set, fed this rote data over and over again. And it's uninvolving. So compositionally th that's really difficult to do. I mean, I, I've talked, I mentioned briefly Alex Toth. I consider Alex Toth to be the best comic book artist that ever lived. Um, I can get arguments with people, you know, I understand <laughs> about that. But when it comes to the science, the composition to framing, I mean, if you want to see some really great comics, look at some of the romance comics that Alex Toth did in the 1950s or is it my young love or true romance or whatever these things were. And it's just storytelling of, you know, somebody, people meet, they fall in love, they have problems. It's incredibly mundane, but his framing, his design work, where he puts the camera, everything, they think they're beautiful and they really stand out. And that was part of the problem I had to learn was to learn how to think more clearly and make less work for myself to not be too prosaic. And there's always that balance. The one thing that I have always kept in mind is that, and I think some writers and certainly some comic book artists lose tr track of this. You've read the script, you know what's going on. The person who's reading it doesn't. You have got to make sure that there's certain very important bits of information data to make the story work and you always you know whenever i draw anything i'm like what's going to make an impact but also what's going to tell the story clearly and I, I i don't look at comics much anymore and i think somebody once asked me to name the four most important things about drawing comics and i'm such a wise <laughs> and i said first of all storytelling 
Secondly, storytelling. Third, telling the story <laughs> for pretty drawings. I mean, it's it, all, all the beautiful drawings. I mean, there's so many artists, that, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how skillful people are and beautifully drawn there. But I often don't see drama. I don't see thinking in the storytelling. And so I, I can't get engaged in it. I would rather have somebody that draws kind of mediocre and tells a great story than somebody who draws beautifully and you don't know what's going on. IDW published three amazing coffee table history books on Alex Toth written by Dean Mullaney and Bruce Canwell. Uh, they were in hardcover. And uh, by the time, viewers and listeners, you are hearing or seeing me say this, the soft cover of the first one, Genius Illustrated, will be out. Well, that's that's good news. I've got them. I've I've got every collection of every every um, every compilation of Alex Toast's work that anybody's done. I mean, I just idolize his work. He's you know he's he he's like Miles Davis. You know he's like you know, one of the great, probably the greatest jazz musician who ever lived. He he utterly and completely understands every aspect of comic art and distills it down to the bare minimum, you know, and you, you can get caught up with, you know, paying attention. I put way too many lines on stuff. You know, I got caught up in that sort of thing. But if you can, if you can do a successful drawing with five lines instead of 25 lines, you've won, you've, you know, you've done the job. So, Bringing it back to the the GI Joe uh, Marvel era again, there's this incredible run, sort of covering uh, just a little over kind of two two years on the book, which which for me is you know my favourite period of the of the entire uh, run of GI Joe. And this is coming from someone who likes GI Joe an awful lot. So talking to the end of that run, what was it that that led to you exiting the the book? Um, sheer exhaustion. I don't know the exact numbers, but I would be surprised if in, in the, the, the before I got on GI Joe, I don't know how many artists drew multiple issues in a row. It seemed to, I, I think, up until a certain point, I certainly held the record. Mm. And um, for a while, I was burnt out. I was. Uh, it was very exhausting. I had gone through a drawn out process in my personal life during the midst of all of this. And I needed, I, I, I was constantly asking as politely as possible. Could we please have a fill in? Cause I need to, you know, go lay on a beach for a mm. week or two weeks or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I was, I, I was just simply burned out and it was getting harder and harder to do it. And, you know, uh, it's it's a difficult book to get somebody to draw. I mean, you've, you know, I was at a convention once, and a guy who was drawing one of Marvel's superhero books was like, "Oh, your royalty checks must really be something. I'd like to have some of that action." And I said, "Hey, talk to your editor. I'll talk to mine. <laughs> Let me draw an issue of Spider-Man or whatever it was, and you can draw an issue of GI Joe." And he's like. Uh, that's okay. 
And I'm like, yeah, because he didn't want to do the work. <laughs> it was, it, it, and I, at a certain point, I was they were, and I got a call. And I said, you know, look, we just part of it was that the book was selling really, really well, and I take it that I was popular on the book. And if I was off the book, maybe that would affect the sales. I don't think so. But it's just difficult to find somebody to be willing to take on that load. Because most artists, when you say, hey, you know, how would you like to draw 22 pages of tanks and aircraft and 30 different characters? And they'll go, no, thank you. You know, they want to they draw Spider-Man or something. And um, a new editor took over. That editor, I have later heard stories, and this is hearsay, that he had a habit of when he took over a book, he wanted it to be his deal and, you know, and moved new people in. But I, I, I was incredibly burnt out and I was told that I wasn't going to get a fill in. So it was just, um, I was just kind of used up Mm -hmm. and then it was just, and then when a new editor took over and they're like, well, you know, you've got to, you know, we don't want to part ways you know, sourly, but you know, we need new blood. And I'm like, yes, yeah, so do I. <laughs> you know. So Rod, all right. So you, you do those three issues, you do a fill in and, and then you uh, came back again for a bit. Yeah. Three yeah. Issues. So you do a fill in and then you come back and you do a, a three issue arc. Uh-huh. And and then the book ends and you're you're drawing other things. And in two thousand eight you start and, and GI Joe ends 2008. You start drawing a daily newspaper strip, and in 2010, GI Joe comes back with the same writer picking up where it left off, and you are hired as a cover artist for about the first year, and you hadn't done covers for GI Joe before. So, can you t- can you talk about this? Well, um, I think I think I would. Was I the was the regular cover or were there variant covers? I cannot remember if there were covers for the same issue by other artists. There, there were. There were track of that. Yeah, there were three covers for each issue. Uh, the guy drawing the interiors was drawing a cover. You were doing a cover, and then there was a Larry Hama sketch cover. Yeah. Um, well, I just. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm supposing I never heard the inside of it. I was supposedly going to have to be that Larry put me up for it. Or maybe the, or maybe the editor thought um, we should have another link to the original run. That'll pull hmm. people in. That, that, that could be a decision that was made too. Um, I'm, I'm, is it that there isn't much story here? You're, you're an illustrator for hire. There was, here was a job. Here was something you could do and you did it. That that was kind of it. Okay. That was, you know, as far as I know. Now, at a certain point, there was supposed to be a, um, there was going to be a, an IDW issue with multiple artists. I think Herb, Herb Trimpey, I think, was going to do work on it. Ron Wagner was going to do work on it. And they asked me. Larry was going to write a script. And um, the editor on the book called me up or yeah, called me up and said, you know, we're going to do this special issue and everybody's going to tell part of the story. Would you like to do that? And I'm like, well, yeah, your checks are clearing. (laughs) You bet. 
and 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 you know and it's there was a certain bit of um i know this is going to sound weird i never thought i was doing a good job on gi joe i you know i i've all you know i feel like an artist is like a shark the minute you stop moving you drowned. You're done. You've always got to get better. So I've always worked hard. So I look back on that stuff and I'm like, oh God, why did I do that? Why did I do this? Blah, blah, blah. And the book was very popular and I never really felt like I was giving people en enough. So when I got offered to do these covers, I said, I'll go back and I don't suck as much as I used to. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll lean into it. And all these people that have been so fond of, you know, the work I did on that, you know, maybe I can do something a little better. And that's, you know, that's what it was. And, and I kind of enjoyed it. And I didn't get to do covers. I mean, it wasn't, you know, covers are, if you're not there on the spot in, in companies like Marvel DC, I mean, they have a lot of artists who are, are there and can turn covers around. Mark, Mark, can you go forward to 164? Right. Is that is that Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Okay. There's something like it. It was a evil guy. Um, and then the, it was this. The, the editor wanted me to do a variation on the on the movie poster for Face Off. Oh, right. That movie with uh, Nicolas Cage and Travolta. John Travolta. One of the worst movies ever made. Oh my God. <laughs> Rod, you were referring to an issue, an issue that Larry would write and like Trimpy and Wagner and you would draw. Yes. Did you end up working on that issue? No, I did not. Is That's an interesting thing. That's uh, so the editor whose name I cannot recall at the time said, do you want, do, would you like to do this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm all in on it. You know, it would be cool, you know, and, and, and like I said, it's like, okay, I don't suck as much now. This would be nice. This would be nice for the people that have supported my work. And, you know, it would be, you know, I could maybe have fun with it. So I agreed to do it. And the guy says, great, I'm going to get you a script. You know, Larry's working on it now. I'll get you the script. And some time passes. I've done, a, I did a couple more covers and I contacted the and said, well, what happened to that script? And he's like, oh, there's a little bit of a delay. He's still working on it. Do you still want to do it? And I'm like, yes. I, I said I wanted to do it. I, it's a dumb thing to say, but I gave my word. You know, a man's word is his honor. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. We'll do that. And then I stopped getting covers and then the editor didn't return my phone calls and somebody else did the part that I was supposed to do, even though I had been asked to do it twice oh. and had agreed to do it twice. So I don't know what the story is on that. This was the yearbook perhaps. Yeah. This is yearbook 2012, which was penciled by Ron friends, Ron Wagner, Herb Trimpey and, uh, and inked, uh, by some of the inks were by uh, Sal Buscema. Is I'm trying to think. Is that when Mark was there an editorial change? There were there were a few. Are yeah. Um, Rod, I don't have my timeline in front of me, and this is a guess. You may have just been a casualty of uh, an editor change who wasn't tracking 
where oh, yeah. where things had been. I'm not saying it was malicious, and I might be wrong anyway. No, I I, I don't think it was malicious. I've never suspected that. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm kind of the girl at the dance that nobody asks. You know, it's like, oh, and I'm great on the dance floor. I'm just not good looking. You know, and I'm Rod, saying, two times you have drawn not just a sketch or a pinup or sort of a cover that may have been, but a story as a commission for a fan two different times or maybe three different yes. times. So, that's a level of artist commission that is uncommon. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, one one was like a seven-page story, I think. And one was an entire, I think almost a full issue's worth of work. And in both, both situations, I was told by the person that commissioned it that it was going to be printed, it was going to be printed with under the purview of Hasbro and that money wasn't going to be made out of it. I got paid for the work, which that's exciting. That's always good when that happens. <laughs> I don't always get paid and nothing ever came of either one of them, but uh, it was an odd situation. It was someone who I think someone was hoping to do like a fan publish version of Joe that would it was supposedly approved by Hasbro or whoever, and so yeah, so <clears throat> that's two complete stories. Well, one was a short story, but yeah, I penciled and inked them, did the whole art job on it, and did get paid, and nothing ever became of them. I, in a previous interview, I've heard you referring to this, and I don't know if it's the same thing, but you referred to a story. Uh, around about year 2000, two stories that were never published, which were Budo on a Desert Island and Spring Scarlet in Springfield. Is this the same thing? Yes. Yeah, those are the two stories. And then more and, recently, uh, more recently, you drew a three-page story or a cover and a two-page story. Mark, help me out. Was, Finish was, this was sentence it, for me. Five pages for Alman Ellis that? about uh, his his character. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, Alman Ellis. Yeah, I um, wise guy. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he uh, he he had me design characters. I think he's had a lot of other artists do stuff on this, but he. Um, I think Ron Wagner's done. That's some right. Work he did the cover. Him, did a cover mm -hmm. for him. So yeah, so he was like he was he was he was literally paying professionals to produce comic books about him as a Joe character. And the, the short, the, the story I did was like an adventure, a little bit of an adventure of how he gets in, uh, brought into, he he's officially made a Joe. And it started off like two pages. And then, and he said, no, I need a little more. And then I need a little more. And then he said, when I'm like, okay, this. And I said, but you know, but it's like, it sort of just stops. You you, you need like a last page, and then I, and I suggested a last page, and which was like him in in uniform skydiving into the camera out of the back of his of a Hercules with a couple of other members of the Joes. And he's like, and here I go, kind of thing. And uh, so I don't know if that was 
that was published, if it was pure self-gratification, I don't know. He has put it online for people to see, and we've had him on an episode. So I have a quick question, Rod, and then Mark has a quick question. So Rod, you are for hire for people for people who want commissions and sketches, yes? And if they had several pages worth of continuity, you might draw a story for them for money? Oh, yeah, I might do that. Okay. And and Mark, <laughs> my so my question here on the on the screen we've got an example of someone paying you money to have a drawing. Uh, this is one that you did for for Chief for the Talking Joe podcast back um back when he was the the main presenter of Serpentor. I want you to listen to this podcast, yes. Um, so uh, my my question was that uh the GI Joe license is now changing hands in the in the publisher, so it's been a IDW for uh, a, a long number of years now, and uh, and and their stint has finished, and we're sort of waiting to find out who the new publisher is, and and there are industry rumours of who that might be. It might be Skybound, or or could be somebody else. So with a new uh, publisher, kind of comes new ideas, new directions. Um, if they were to to ask you if you were still interested in drawing something. GI Joe, what would the would what would the answer back be? Sure, I'd be all I'd be in for it, I, and and I'm a cheap date. <laughs> <laughs> Ask anybody who gets commissions from me. I'm I've I've had people literally argue with me, saying you're not charging enough. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, well, you know, can we not pay you more? Exactly. Can we not pay you more? That that doesn't happen very often in this world, quite frankly. But, you know, my feeling is um, people who have been loyal to my work and who have an emotional connection to my work, you know, most of them are working class, regular old people, and I'm not going to, you know, try and bill them, you know, publisher rates because it's, I'm enjoying it. I, you know, it's fun. I like doing pieces of art for people, you know, that's going to be in their home. That's going to be, you know, they're going to be part of, you enjoy it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I can't imagine <clears throat> that that would happen, but I would sure I'd be up for it. There we go. Here's, here's one of mine. Snake eyes. Ah, oh yeah. Issue. 31. I remember that. That was sort of the greatest hits of that issue so mark tell us what this is i i see a page with with four panels this is a, a re a recreation um this is a greatest hits from issue 31 yeah. so basically i said can we have some sort of montage of some of those greatest bits with with snake eyes as the lead character so we've got firefly on the top of the roof of the cabin destro down and fred down below with airborne and, and spirit and then snake eyes in in the middle and the snake eyes is a uh, is an entirely new composi- composition. It doesn't it doesn't appear in the po- this this sort of pose yeah. in the commission in the original issue. So it's uh yeah it's like a almost like a, a cover that that could have been perhaps for the for the for the comic. So um yeah, it was it was just basically picking particular high points in the story and 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 making a a, a, a montage page out of it. The firefly on the roof thing is almost, it's pretty much exactly the same panel. I don't know what it is, but over the years, I've had any number of people tell me how much they love that panel. 
and it's it's a guy lying on a roof but you know i guess the physicality of it or you know i don't know what it is but that particular that's that that scene in that issue people have expressed uh an, an affection for yeah i think it's because we get to see firefly as a you know full figure character there and doing the thing that he is you know is meant to be his speciality which is his sort of destruction and explosives uh, so see that yeah and and he's a, he's one of those fan favorite characters who who sort of hasn't been used anywhere near as much i think as people would like so to see him you know all all of him doing the thing that that he should be doing which is blowing things up i think a lot of people sort of uh, respond to well i i i've always i really he's one of the favorite characters i ever drew i always I liked the book early on when, you know, it, you could, they were still recognizable as soldiers. And, um, you know, I liked, you know, I always, he's a sapper, you know, he's the guy that goes in behind the lines and plants exposes and stuff. Uh, I, I always really liked, I always liked Flint a lot because he really looks like a soldier, you know, with the, the beret and the, and the bandoliers and everything. I always like the characters that look like soldiers, but boy, yeah. See, I'm, I'm looking at this. I, you know, I actually don't hate it. I'm kind of, I kind of have fun. <laughs> it's funny as part of the prep for this, I tried to track down uh, some previous interviews and and see see what I could find. And the the what main one that I could find relating to GI Joe uh, was at a con. And uh, funny enough, you were saying. I'm just in the middle of doing a commission for this guy, Tim Finn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, right. Jeez. Sorry, Rod. I, for, uh, <laughs> I forgot. You also did a really cool commission for me 10 years ago. It was, um, it was 17 by 22. So like a front cover and a back cover. And it was, the idea was to hit some notes from your run of GI Joe. And then also when you came back and did three issues later. So it's, Flint and Lady J and some Dreadnoughts and Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes on a train because the train refers to uh, 116, 117, 118. That's the one that that monstrous uh, everything in the kitchen sink <laughs> one. And yet there. Uh, right. So, Mark, I, I included it, you know, a wish list of characters. And Rod, interestingly, a good third of it is negative space. It's the sky. And it's a really interesting comparison because i also had ron wagner do a drawing similarly sort of double wide of all of the key characters who showed up in his run and he has the camera much closer to all the characters and it's uh, and his is his is really there's sort of no uh breathing room and ron is a friend so i'm saying this uh, in a nice way yeah uh what a what a cool commission I'm a big fan of negative space. I'm a big fan of um, giving everybody breathing room. I mean, you know, for a hot design, you know, something like this, you would maybe set it looking down the train and have, you know, some bigger figures in the foreground taking a lot of action and everybody in the back. But you end up, you know, it's like you're you're sitting watching somebody at a basketball game across the court or something. It's like so. It's it's this is kind of the Lawrence of Arabia for uh, <laughs> GI Joe commissions. Good um, lord, I must have been out of my mind. Look at that thing. 
thank you again. And Mark, I'm sure you can figure this out or you you have said this when you've had people draw commissions for you. One of the advantages, of course, of having an artist draw something that's like a cover that's not going to be a cover is they suddenly gain the top third back because there's not going to be a logo. No, and it's well, yeah, well, it's always fun. You, you, the problem I often I didn't do a lot of covers till later in my career, but the problem I always had with covers is that because of the logo and all the space, you sort of almost got forced into having a square compositional area. And I've, I've heard this and I've read it before, but for me, extra pertinent, uh, I hate the square. I, I, that's it's just the most difficult uh, form for a composition. I tend to like widescreen or like tall panels so that your eye moves across. It creates motion. Uh, and that's what this giant thing is here is putting everything so that you your eye will sweep across it and it gives motion to it. But uh, yeah, but it is, it's always fun. I mean, I, I do a fair amount of commissions and it is really nice to have all that space to work with. And also I tend, I'm, in, I'm heavily influenced by uh, Japanese art. Uh, I don't mean manga, but I mean Japanese printmaking. And I've always, I like their, the way they divide up spaces and composition. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm much more, likely to want to have a widescreen shot or, or tall panels because it creates movement but yeah it's always and it's fun too that you know you're not the best thing about commissions is that um you're not jumping through somebody's hoops you know there's not these certain things that have to be done and it's uh, it's kind of liberating when i was in art school and we were uh studying we were we were doing a storyboarding lesson my teacher said don't compose in squares. A square is the most difficult shape to compose in. Compose in rectangles. Think of TVs and movie theater screens. Those are rectangles, right? Even a TV that's four by three, that's not four by four or three by three. And I thought, why is this person right? And uh, <laughs> I started teaching and I had a big storyboarding unit and my students would fill a page of their sketchbook with small thumbnail rectangles to sort of knock out shapes for storyboards and they would sort of without realizing it just draw squares and i would say no 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 these have to be rectangles these can't be squares and i think a lot of it also has to do with with a rectangle if you're thinking of the rule of thirds you can emphasize something more to the left or to the right which is another way of saying rod what you just said about movement across the screen left to right or right to left and with a square you you, you can't emphasize as much as well and students end up centering a lot of elements yeah. if they're working in squares. And I say to my students, that is a rule you can break after you graduate. Like you can, you can, you can make your Wes Anderson film or you can compose <laughs> your comics pages like Frank quietly after you graduate. But for now you can't center things and it's gotten a little harder because with uh, TikTok and uh, vertical video on online and on phones, there are A, horizontal rectangles and B, squares, squares that people are yeah. making media for. And so I just end up being this, you know, grumpy old man, ah, rectangles, horizontal rectangles. <laughs>
Well, it, it, uh, you, you just have a lot more options. Also, we, the human eye, I think, kind of sees in widescreen. I mean, your, your field of focus for scanning probably, you know, from the good old days when we were running away from something trying to eat us. I mean, we just <laughs> naturally the eye scans and it's easy to be more dynamic that way. I mean, um, one of the, one of the, major influences on me uh, is Joe Kubert. I think Joe Kubert's one of the greatest artist comics ever had, certainly as far as composition and layout. And uh, he was always using really interesting, you know, widescreen shots or tall, narrow panels. It, it's, it's just a much stronger, uh, you have more options that way. You can play with it more, I think. Um, some years ago, I did a phantom comic art job for a publisher in Sweden. <laughs> I mean, I love the phantom. I, you know, as a kid, I started out reading comic strips and the ghost who walks, you know, the phantom, the guy in the purple suit. And it was somewhat uh, aggravating because I think uh, the, the publisher's sort of thought of everything like a, a newspaper comic strip and they were very um uh put off by uh horizontal pans or you know vertical narrow vertical panels that also create kind of a timing effect so um, it, it was um, you know you're always adapting to what somebody else uh expects it's uh tricky to make a, a living um, singing for your supper, I guess. Uh, I I am getting short on time. Mark, yeah. shall we uh, wrap up with any Absolutely. final comments? Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, my final comment was it, it's sort of great, great to, to uh, spend this time hanging out, hearing the stories. Um, very, you know, very privileged, sort of big fan of comics, big fan of G.I. Joe, but um, those sort of, those issues that you worked on in, in the you know, issue you know, 30, 40, 50s sort of just lightning in a bottle for me sort of a, a magic period for for gi joe and comics in 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 general so um uh very big privilege to to sort of talk to you about that that era um any sort of any final th thoughts about sort of you know looking reflections looking back on on your time at, at gi joe well i i honestly really appreciate what you said i i mean i think it, it was just it was a it was a difficult time in my life. It was a it was a difficult book to do, and I sometimes think I didn't quite appreciate uh, what it meant to people to to kids as much as I sh I could have. I think I would I probably would have enjoyed it more, but um, so uh, it's an interesting it's a it's a strange thing i mean i always felt like i i kind of got uh i kind of got shoved on stage at carnegie hall <laughs> and i only knew two chords <laughs> you know I, I i didn't i didn't really have enough going on in my work to to uh sort of validate but uh, you know kids really loved it. I mean, you guys still love it. And so, it, you know, it, it, that means something to me. I just wish 
you know, looking back on it, that maybe I'd had my head a little farther out of my caboose. <laughs> but, you know, life gets in the way of things. And it was it was interesting. And there, you know, the thing about I, what I about Joe that I liked is that it wasn't it wasn't a fan favorite comic. It was it was a comic book that kids who weren't really into comics loved. It was the kind of comic book that kids would read it and they'd trade it with their buddies and they'd roll it up and it's, you know, the way comic books used to be before they became high art. And it was, you know, it was kind of a wonderful thing. I mean, I'm looking back on it now. It's like, I I wish I could have appreciated it more. But um, what can I say? And Rod, if if someone was to uh, try and find you online or uh, ask for a commission, uh, what would be the best way of doing that? Just um, I'm just give you my email. Uh, it's rodwigham54 at gmail.com. I, I, you know, that's the simplest way to do it. And I, I'll do, you know, I do commissions. I'm I'm perfectly happy to do it. I. The one thing I will say is I, 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 I will not take, you know, people want to send me their entire collections of books or things that they've had done. I, I don't want to do that. And for the re- the main only reason for that is I don't want responsibility for somebody else's property. You, you don't want to find you know, them, somebody, you mean? No, no. Yeah. I, I don't want them to ship. The, if, right. if I'm on a con, I'll sign yeah. them. But I don't want I don't want people to send me stuff that's their property. And, and then I have to be responsible for it because, you know, I get run over by a bus or hit by lightning. The last thing on my head's going to be, oh, no, I've still got that guy's books. <laughs> Rod, will you be will you be appearing at any conventions in 2023 that you know of? Uh, you know, I have to think about that. I um I'm still iffy about being around people. In, in 2003, I had a very exotic kind of heart surgery to deal with an undetected birth defect. So now that I'm an old guy, I'm one of those people that I don't need to get even the mildest form of COVID. You know, I, I don't need to get the flu. I'm, I'm vaccinated and, and boosted and all of that. So I, I, have to, I have to seriously think about it. Because it is, you know, according to my doctor, it's a risky situation to be in. So the best way for fans to meet you is through email for now. Yeah, at the moment. There, there is a convention in Augusta, Georgia uh, in June, I think, that they've asked me before. And I'm just, I'm trying to figure out some way whether I could be comfortable or not there. You know, I'm wearing a hazmat suit, you know, <laughs> or a rebreather. But at the moment... The best way to get a hold of me is through my email. And it's my email. It's not, you know, I can't ignore it. But like I said, I, I, I don't I, I don't want to take a responsibility for people's property. If, if I was at a con, you know, I'll sign anything. I once had a guy come to a convention with a computer printout, and he had every single thing I had ever done that had been published except for a couple of paperbacks I illustrated. And I sat there and signed them all. Just like, you know, you put bread on my table, you fed my family, you know, sure. I don't, I'll sign, but I just don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want someone's property. 
Rod, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us and telling us stories and in many cases telling us uh, the, the longer and detailed version of the story. We like we like the longer and detailed versions of the stories and, and our episodes <laughs> tend to go pretty long. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I rambled on. I, I'm, I hope you get some usable footage out of all this but it's you know. all usable it is a it is a it is an entire episode mark shall you uh shall you wrap us up tim where can people find you when you are not talking to me and uh, illustrious guests about gi joe video essays on television and film at our youtube channel atomic abe productions my brick and mortar comic book store is in somerville massachusetts hub comics and i write about gi joe at a realamericanbook.com and if you are listening to or watching this you've probably found us already but talkingjoe.co.uk is the place to find out more it's the website with links to all of our things weekly uh, podcast and fairly frequent videos um, so I think that is us done uh, big thank you to uh, to Rod for joining us and talking to us for, uh, uh, for just quite some time thank you for being generous with your time which uh, leads me just to say that I think we are done and Tim <laughs> Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. <laughs> That's us done. <laughs> Laters. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Rod. Boy, I need a drink. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was lovely.